it's because not too many people. <laughs> it's not too few people, so I think that nobody wants to listen to me, and it's not too many either. So that's all right. So I'll set the microphones. So it seems a bit strange jumping into giving a talk, used to having all the preamble of the chanting and the meditation, which <laughs> uh, to compose the mind. But, uh, I just have to leap in, isn't it? So sitting here, it kind of reminds me that all the times I used to sit over there, which is for a very long time, first time about 27 years ago, coming to listen to Long Horse Samedo, who was always the person sitting here. There's never anybody else. And I always felt a bit strange, you know, because I wasn't used to any of all of this with the Buddha Rupa and everything. I never, hadn't grown up a Buddhist, so it was, always seemed rather strange to me. And in those days, Lumpur Samedo used to walk in. As you say, it was always him that gave the talk. And uh, he'd sit down and then all the monks would bow to him. And I used to think, gosh, you know, they must think he's some kind of avatar or something. There's some of one human being bowing to another. But now I realise it's just convention and it's a very nice one. And now I think I get to feel a bit strange sitting up here. I've got fit strange sitting over there. Now I'm strange sitting up here. <laughs> you just can't win, can you? <laughs> so I missed the normality somewhere along the line. Uh, never mind. And, uh, at least I'm dressed a bit strangely as well, so you might, except you might kind of expect me to say strange things because I'm dressed a bit strangely. It's good, it sets the context. Uh, is it's true that a, a monk does see things differently. Um, so uh, you can listen to me a bit like you were kind of in the Himalayas or something, listening to some foreign bloke. But I think I'll start, I'm going to start off fairly normal because... Um, thankfully, these days, the word mindfulness is part of common parlance. And uh, that seems to be what brings a lot of people to the monastery these days. It used to be just curiosity, I think. You know, people used to turn up just to see what was going on. Didn't know very much. But uh, these days, people know a lot more. They know all about this thing called mindfulness. And... Uh, this is a really good thing. I mean, there's some reservations in Buddhist circles about this, whether mindfulness, the mindfulness that's being taught now is the, the mindfulness of the Buddha, this kind of thing. But uh, the practice of mindfulness just in itself furthers itself. Uh, I was having a discussion about this with Longpur Samedo while he was here, actually. I was talking to him about this issue and what he thought about all this mindfulness everywhere, even in the American armed forces. You know, people think, gosh, if it's in the, if it's in the Marines, it must be going badly wrong, mustn't it? <laughs> you know, the Google executive and the kind of places that you don't associate with spirituality at all. At least I don't. And yet, talking to Longpore Sumado, we were both agreeing, ended up agreeing with each other that if people enter into this practice called mindfulness, then this is something that furthers itself. 
that uh, this can take you on a spiritual path. It ends up taking you on a spiritual path if you follow it far enough. So uh, these days a lot of mindfulness is taught in a kind of secular way. You know, the people just teach mindfulness. They go into schools and things and they are only allowed to teach just mindfulness. And they, they strip out all the kind of Buddhist content and just teach mindfulness. And uh, this is good because it can reach a wider audience of people. Um, and you can, if you look at it, look at Buddhism in a certain way, you can see that Buddhism actually has grown out of this practice called mindfulness. Uh, so this is a very good place to start. And yet it's only if you apply this thing called mindfulness or you get into it to a point where you're willing to change your life, uh, make sacrifices, do all kinds of things in order to uh, establish your mind in the present uh, more and more fully that you discover the whole thing. So uh, this afternoon the theme that, that I thought to, to talk about is uh, samadhi and wisdom which if you're here at the mealtime then Ajahnana Rato was was announcing this talk and he said it was uh, samadhi and wisdom and then he kind of paused and said uh, well, or wisdom and samadhi or one or the other because <laughs> uh, actually I've put them uh, for people in the know then uh, you know, the traditional practice in Buddhism is sila, uh, virtue which I'll come back to in a minute and then uh, samadhi and then wisdom at the end so the title of this talk, Wisdom and Samadhi, is putting the two final things round a different way. Wisdom first, Samadhi second. And uh, this is deliberate, didn't make a mistake. Uh, because in this tradition, Thai forest tradition, then uh, the ultimate, the highest one, is where you enter into this thing called Samadhi, which I'll explain through wisdom. Uh, so this is to put this talk in its context, in, in context or context of the final goal, that uh, the highest one is to enter into this thing called samadhi through this thing called wisdom. Okay. So going back to mindfulness then, so how does mindfulness start you off and get you going in the right direction? Then uh, if people come practicing mindfulness or out to practice mindfulness then the uh, first thing they can discover or uh, not often actually not often the first thing can take people a little while but uh, what you can realize is that if you try to bring the mind into the present moment uh, just as a kind of willful thing then this works to some degree but then the, the past and the future tend to kind of follow one into the present moment isn't it here you are sitting here trying to be mindful and the past and the future keep coming in, isn't it? Uh, in particular, the past uh, comes in in terms of regret and the future comes in in terms of desire. So uh, somebody who wants to perfect their mindfulness needs to find a way past both regret and desire in order to enter fully into the present moment. And you may be willing to do this, you know, we may want to do this in terms of regret. You may be willing to do this in terms of desire, you know, to, 
to give up your desires in order to enter fully into the present moment, which is what a monk does. We don't, we, we live not seeking anything, we just take what comes to us. Uh, we train ourselves uh, to get beyond desire. Uh, so this is the kind of personal sacrifice that you can come to, to, to your mindfulness, to your own mindfulness, to deepen your own mindfulness. And you can want to keep moral precepts to avoid regret that drag you back into the past in order to keep your mindfulness. You know, so when I used to come on retreats here years ago, then I would often go home and, uh, you know, I go, I, I go from a peaceful retreat and I go you know, back to my ordinary life. I go off to a party or something. You know, and then the, the morning after with the hangover and the... Uh, then I'd be just thinking, oh no, you know, what have I done? Where's my mindfulness? You know, I want my mindfulness back. <laughs> so it can be a completely natural thing like this. You know, this is the natural way, you know, the fruits of the practice draw one on. You get a bit of mindfulness together and then you want to hang on to it. You want to protect it. Uh, you don't want to party anymore. You'd rather have your mindfulness. So you're not denying yourself something. You've just fallen in love with this thing called mindfulness and you're wanting to further it in any way you can. You know, so that's how just uh, people enter into this kind of places quite innocently, wanting to be more mindful. You know, and it can change their lives because they realise, well, what this, look what this is going to take, actually, to get me right into the present moment all the time, where it's so nice, you know, this lovely, timeless present moment. So well, that's quite straightforward, then I hope you can understand that much. And then there are these two rather more mysterious things called wisdom and samadhi, uh, which you come on to. So what, what tends to be emphasised in modern day Buddhist practice is a kind of continuity of mindfulness. So you're trying to be mindful all the time, you know, from one moment to another. And yet there's another dimension that you can discover to mindfulness, you know, you, other than just being, staying in the present, which is a strength to mindfulness or a strength of awareness, a, a power to your awareness, uh, which you can develop through the practice of formal meditation. So you've all seen us get up to this here, you know, we're all sitting on the floor here on these funny little round cushions, crossing legs and watching our breath, this kind of thing in order to strengthen the mindfulness uh, in, right there in the present moment. Uh, you can be just aware in the present moment or you can be very aware in the present moment. Uh, you can discover this through meditation, how aware you can be, just a very simple thing. and How you can be kind of polishing your awareness, so to speak, through becoming aware of a very simple thing, training yourself with a meditation object. So samadhi is a kind of strength of mindfulness, developing a strength of mindfulness through the use of a meditation object and then getting in touch with your own awareness and 
polishing your own awareness through the practice of meditation. And if you keep at it long enough, <coughs> you're good at it, then uh, you enter into this thing called samadhi, which can happen in one way or another. So if, uh, if you're watching the breath, for example, then you can be watching the breath for you know, typically two, three hours, two, three, four hours even. You can follow the breath that long without missing one. Then you've got a chance of dropping into this thing called samadhi, uh, which is where you withdraw, the mind withdraws from the things of the senses, uh, let's go of the things of the senses. So when we close our <coughs> when we close our eyes to meditate, then what comes what comes to us is our history, our regrets, or our desires, our cravings, our habits, so to speak. If we find a way to let go of all this, you know, to stay with the meditation object, then we can get into the breath, or get into space. It's like getting into space. It's a bit like Star Trek. Da, 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 da. Space, the final frontier. If you remember that. Uh, but it's actually not the final frontier. We'll come on to that. <laughs> but you can get, in common parlance, you can say you can get yourself into a good space through meditation, yeah, but... You can, you can actually get yourself into a good space in a very literal, concrete, tangible, lovely way where you end up and there's nothing there but space uh, till you open your eyes again and there's all these kinds of things floating about in space all these nice people floating about in space or whatever it is all bathed in space so your life then becomes bathed in space which is a different deal and once your mind is bathed in space, you realise that you know, space permeates everything. You know, everywhere space is everywhere. It's this kind of nice, still quality everywhere that the mind just loves to be with, loves to establish itself in. Uh, it's all bright, very bright, because uh, it's almost as though the mind, the brightness of the mind, can see itself through becoming one with space. So these are all lovely spaces that you can enter into and there's more than one. So typically if you get to this point with your meditation and you go bang into space, uh, then you're going to buy the one that you get. You know, this is the ultimate because it can feel like that. You know, these are radical experiences. You can feel like that. You can believe you're enlightened even, uh, just there. Uh, mind goes so bright and clear and happy and blissful. And yet there's all kinds of different spaces you can enter into, uh, not just one. Uh, the ultimate one is the one where you enter into this kind of space through wisdom. Uh, so I'll go on to describe what wisdom's like. Then uh, you know, wisdom, essentially, if you've had some, any of this samadhi, then essentially wisdom is what takes you there. It's the reflection, uh, consideration, view of life which will take you back to your samadhi. So you've got a very, very concrete way of seeing how you're doing in terms of where your mind is, the, the 
the wisdom of your thoughts or reflections on life. You know, is, it, is it getting your samadhi better or are you losing your samadhi? If you're getting your samadhi better, then that's because your thoughts are wise. If, you, if your samadhi is getting worse, it's because your thoughts aren't. So this kind of brightness of mind that you get through the samadhi becomes a kind of guide for you. You know, if your mind's bright, you know you're on the right track. If your mind goes dark, you know you're not. And even before this, you know, this very clear experience of the bright mind where everything's disappeared, even before that, you know, anyone who's experienced or practiced mindfulness long enough, you know, get a bit of brightness of mind in the present moment, then you see how that brightness changes as you go through your life. You know, and the kind of common parlance in meditation world, monastic world, is, is uh, how bright your mind is. How bright was your mind that day? Or oh, my, my mind was really bright that day, or my mind wasn't so bright. Or I ate, so, I ate too much, so my mind wasn't very bright giving that talk, <laughs> for example. So we have this kind of direct gauge then. You don't have to have a theory anymore. You know, if you've got enough mindfulness there, enough brightness, presence of mind there, you don't need a theory about what's wise and what isn't anymore. But of course, there's a lot of wisdom around that we can tap into, isn't there, luckily? Uh, and there's the Buddha's teachings, of course, which uh, you know I think is the ultimate. I would do, wouldn't I? Um, but... Uh, Yeah, you would, we, of course, would see the Buddha's teachings as the way to the highest space, the way to the space that uh, lasts forever, uh, the way to the, the, the establishing your mind in space. Uh, so you never lose your samadhi, so to speak, so the eternal samadhi, uh, nibbana. And a complete end to suffering. And so these days again, you know, we can we can uh, look at the modern teaching, and it can be very wise in in terms of uh, mental suffering. Uh, we can learn that well. Yes, if I live in the present moment, and we we attune ourselves in the present moment you know, to our surroundings and live a good life, and accept our, our limitations accept the limitations of things, then we can be happy. And yeah, the Buddhist teaching goes further than that even, that we can escape as well the physical sufferings of life. So a lot of people will take this to be inevitable. Uh, the common teaching these days is, oh, well, yes, this is the way to avoid mental suffering, and we all know what we should be doing, a lot of people. You know, we come to me and say, well, yes, I know what I should be doing. I should be meditating, and I should be accepting everything, and I should be... <laughs> but one of the things that takes the edge off all of this, you know, this uh, kind of mind practice, is this thing called the body. You know, we still have this thing called the body, which we're carrying around with us, uh, there's an inevitable amount of difficulty with it, isn't there? You know, all the kind of things we have to do with for it. 
You know, we have to feed it and take it for walks and you know, we can't just sit there in samadhi all day. We have to get up and go to the loo and go for walks and eat things. Uh, and so people who get right into this kind of mind practice, mind space, you know, everything can seem like a dream. It can be, uh, it can be a sublime feeling. Everything looks, looks like an illusion or a dream until they fall over or I knew a lady who uh, who was in this kind of state of mind, a long-term practitioner, very bright and happy, and uh, you know, a yoga practitioner, meditator for very very dedicated meditator for very many years, and then she had a car accident, and she couldn't sit meditation, and she was in a lot of pain, and it was almost like you could see her body dragging her down. Uh, very sad, very upset. She wasn't expecting that. You know, didn't realize that, that that could happen, you know, that your body could drag you down, so to speak, like that. Uh, same thing in a retreat I taught just recently. A Sri Lankan lady who had been incredibly dedicated in her practice from a very, very young age and become a very good meditator and... Uh, uh, very, very much enjoying her own state of mind and fairly equanimous about the things of the senses, and all the way to that one. You know, that's a very beautiful, lovely place to be. And then she hurt her back, uh, uh, slipped a disc, like I did uh, <laughs> two years ago, year and a half ago, and uh, her body had dragged her down. You know, so how do we, how do we avoid? The body dragging us down. If we're there up, if we're up there in the heaven in our spiritual practice, how do we avoid the body dragging us down? Uh, the answer to that is that you take the body into the practice with you. you. Take your body along with you, all the way. It's the way to avoid that one. And there's a tremendous. Well, this can be a more difficult practice in some ways. There's an enormous amount to be learnt from this. So uh, I went this way many years ago. You know, I was, I'd studied psychology and then I uh, was into coming here a lot. And uh, then I decided to study the body as well uh, because I kind of getting a sense for this or a sense for the fact that the, the states of mind that I was experiencing were dependent on this body. I could see that, you know, like if I ate too much, <laughs> I slept too much, you know, there we are, oh dear, they go back in the soup. You know, I have to be more careful, oh dear, I have to get up more early and have to do more practice and uh, you know, keep going, da 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 you know. So I could see how this brightness of mind was dependent upon physical health, well-being, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, Clarity of my clarity of my situation. So I was looking, wanting to examine. Then you know, became interested in the body mind connection and uh, how you work with that. And there's an enormous, like I said, there's an enormous amount to be learnt in this respect, and how the mind affects the body 
how the body affects the mind. So you know, luckily these days there's a lot of awareness around this. It's, because uh, it's called interactionism, incidentally, in terms of the mind-body problem or philosophy, that we accept now that the, the mind can can affect the body and the body can affect the mind. We, we, we're gathering our knowledge in, in, this, in these respects, accepting that, that all this goes on, uh, the power of the mind or the, the way that the body can affect the mind. <clears throat> so one can of course get in touch with one's emotional world very strongly through awareness of the body uh, and it's almost as though you have to go through or work through your emotional world or kind of uh, uh, find your way through your emotional stuff to find the body even uh, it's kind of mysterious you find this mysterious fact that when we begin to look for the body as practitioners and look to become aware of it, can't even find it. All we can find is a whole mass of feelings. So we are looking around in is a whole mass of feelings. There's no body there. You've got to find it. You know, you've got to find your head or your feet or your teeth or something. Now, it's only after I've been practicing meditation quite intensively for about five years. I was a monastic by this time. Uh, I was sitting there doing my mindfulness of breathing one day, uh, right there at the nose tip, and about two inches behind my nose tip, I realised that there were these hard things in my hard things, just just kind of hard objects, smooth hard objects, uh, which were my teeth. I realised I was experiencing my teeth in a completely different way, new way. Uh, just as a just like pebbles on the beach or you know, in a rock pool or something with water flowing around them uh, just like a just like a part of nature and it was a sublime experience it was a very calm uh, peaceful experience and it was like bringing the body into that peaceful mind into that into that space uh, bringing the body into that space meant that the uh, body couldn't take me out of that space. Uh, it can be the same with our emotional world, you know. Either our emotional world takes us away from our meditation, away from the peace, or we pull our emotional world into the peace. Uh, we drag it in to the peaceful place, draw it into the heart, draw our emotions, draw our feelings into the heart. If we don't, then they're going to pull the heart into them, out into them. Uh, this is the kind of dynamic of it. And then further down the line, then you what you discover. Lumpur Samedo was talking, gave a talk the other the other week here. He's talking about mindfulness of the body. And he just said, you know, just like he does, you know, he just said quite, uh, uh, how would you say, he said it very, um, like it was nothing really. At the beginning of his talk, he said about the body, well, the, the mind isn't in the body, the body is in the mind. Just like that. And he went on from there. 
Actually, that's a very deep thing to realize. The, the mind is in the body, the body is in the mind. Uh, it's a very deep thing to see, to realize. Changes our experience, changes our existential situation, actually. Uh, if you can be, you've been growing up as human beings in the modern world, assuming that the mind is in the body. You know, people people think too much and they kind of, oh, you know, holding their head like, oh, gosh, you know. <sighs> you know it's like thoughts in the head. Uh, like we're in here, aren't we? Or my feelings, or oh, you know, at the heart, something like that. So we've got it all figured out that our mind's in the body. So we've, because we've got that all, that's our perception of things. That's the way we experience life: as a mind in the body. Here we are, a mind trapped in a body. Uh, well, you may think it's great to be a mind in a body. Not trying to be negative about it. But it's very different from the experience of the body in the mind, body in the spacious mind. That's a totally different experience. Uh, quite a radical experience. It can reframe all the rest of our experience. So although Long Poor Samedo didn't hesitate on that very long, he just went piling on into the feelings and off he went. Uh, actually, the talks he gave here recently, he said, oh, I, I've managed to pare it right down. He was telling me afterwards, well, I've pared it right down. You know, that's just the essentials. Everything's there. I've pared it right down over 40 years. Uh, but there can be a tremendous amount to be learnt just from those two, that opener. The mind isn't in the body. The body is in the mind. You can experience the body in the mind. The mind can be bigger than the body like a bright space that includes the body, encompasses, embraces the body. Okay, different experience of the mind, different experience of the body. And this is where the ultimate lies. It's a the wisdom that we develop through our awareness of the body, that's the highest wisdom, and the highest wisdom that takes us into the deepest samadhi, or the highest, uh, most lasting samadhi, anibbana. So there we have it. <laughs> or we don't, I suppose. <laughs> uh, So in my mind, then, what I've just described is how just the simple practice of mindfulness, if you love it enough and you're willing to sacrifice for it, uh, then it can further itself and take you deeper and deeper into this thing called Buddhism. And in a way, it's a shame. You could think that it's a shame that we have all the trappings of a religion and we have these, these figures and this tradition and everything, because it can put people off, you know, can mean that you can't teach the Buddhist bits, you can't teach the highest aspects of mindfulness when you walk into schools and talk about the Buddhist teachings because it's become a religion. You know, it's got all the trappings of a religion. And yet the positive side of this is that you can see, well, this simple thing called mindfulness can take us 
right into our spiritual lives, right into the, anything that we could, everything and everything, everything that we associate with religious practice. And yet we find all these things out for ourselves. And we find all the big truths of life out for ourselves, the relationship between the mind or between the spirit and the body. So, of course, this means in Buddhism that we, what we come out with is the, is the uh, understanding of dependent origination, which is the understanding that the Buddha had of how the mind gets born into a body and are born into one body after another. Now, both life after life, you, know, you see this kind of reality happening life after life and also moment by moment. You can observe it moment by moment, how you get born into your body. You, know, you go all solid, maybe you know that one. All of a sudden you go all solid, heavy. Oh, <laughs> and there you are carrying this body around. There's certain mind states that are really like that, isn't it? I mean, there's a new theory of depression, in, and there's a new theory of uh, psychiatric theory to do with this, which I find fascinating. Where they say that you know, somebody who's, who gets depressed is overly, overly embodied. Uh, so you're dragging your body about like a lump of lead. Or somebody who's schizophrenic doesn't, doesn't have a body anymore, they can't find it, they can't ground themselves. This makes sense to me as a practitioner that you know, there would be these extremes and yet complete sanity would be right there in the middle, uh, right there with this kind of light touch on the body on this kind of human life. Here's what this means is that you know, spirituality isn't apart from our humanity. And we, can bring, we can bring our spirituality right home, right here, to our human lives in these human bodies because it is through learning about this relationship between the body and mind that we learn the deepest truths. In that respect, there's no division. You're not trying to get away from your life as a human being. It's the greatest classroom in the, in the universe is a human body. So I'm trying to encourage you, I'm trying to encourage you, aren't I, to take this... Uh, practice of mindfulness as deep as it goes and yet uh, our spirit throughout all of this is to keep to this uh, initial intention uh, to, 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 to keep to this sense of mindfulness as a goal in itself because uh, this, is this is a beautiful path, this is an enjoyable path to put mindfulness right there in the centre of everything and then we're investigating things in the present moment. Our minds can come alive with our investigation rather than it just becoming a, a heady intellectual or philosophical thing and we just fall asleep. <laughs> Isn't it? It all gets too intellectual. So I might be getting a bit too intellectual or it's a bit too hot in here. <laughs> uh. So we have to bring this thing alive and keep it alive, isn't it? Like meditation, if it just becomes a, 
a habit, you know, you take it up, think, oh, this sounds good, and you have a go at it, and it becomes a habit. It just dies on you. You have to keep it alive. You keep it alive through watching the dynamics between body and mind. It can become, become absolutely fascinating. You know, how just a simple fact of, you know, when you're sitting here with your eyes straight ahead, then you can just feel, you can feel like one person, in my mind. So here you are, yes, I, here I am aware of this room and the people in it. Uh, when I look down at my own body, all of a sudden it can seem like there's two people or there's some kind of funny relationship going on. No? Try it. Just kind of look down at your body in your mind's eye. It's kind of, um, right. <laughs> yeah. So what, what they're adding to mindfulness now, in modern psychology, what they're adding on to this whole thing of mindfulness are two things. Uh, embodiment is, the, is, is the new, another new buzzword. And empathy, these two new buzzwords. You know, it's all about being empathetic and being embodied. All psychological research has to be embodied and empathetic. And you try to... Just try to uh, get that together. You think, okay, empathetic, embodied, right, how do I do that? And you, you look down at yourself. So, okay, I've got to be embodied. You look down at yourself. Right. Uh, <laughs> it feels a bit strange, doesn't it, all of a sudden? It seems like there's two of you. You start kind of relating to yourself and thinking, oh, this is strange, there's two of me now. No, you can't relate to that yet. And so beware of looking down, isn't it? <laughs> beware of me and my mind. Uh, we don't be kind of turn into two people <laughs> or more. Uh, So it's funny things we can do with these kinds of ideas. And yet if we have an open mind and we're always investigating, then we can't really go wrong. You know, if you, if you have an open mind and then you, you play a game like this, you start to you know, look at your own feelings and you start wondering, what's, oh, I'm not sure how I feel anymore. I thought I knew how I felt until I started thinking about it. And now I'm not sure anymore. Uh, maybe I need to find a therapist to tell me to sort this one out for me. <laughs> but if you've got an open mind, you know, then you then you're kind of wondering about all of that. Well, how did that happen? I was one person until I looked down. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So that's what keep it, keeps it all alive for you, not having a theory, but uh, having mindfulness. You know, my theory, a theory isn't mindfulness, is it? You're not really watching anymore, you're just trying to prove your theory. Uh, you're not just watching what's happening. Yeah, see, what, see what happens when you look down with love instead of analysis. You know, you look down with love instead of trying to work it all out. You know, think, oh, what's going on here? What is this thing? What are these feelings? What are they doing? What are they up to? 
you know, what if you look down with love instead? How does that feel? So in my mind then is this sort of willingness to investigate, uh, this love of mindfulness and this willing to, willingness to go all the way and investigate everything that, that takes you there. Everything, you know, the Buddha was that bold, you know, he got to the point where he had these incredible spaces of mind and he would say, okay, and what, what is that dependent on? Uh, yes, it's still dependent on the body. Oh, right. What happens to the body? It dies. Hmm. I've got to go higher. Maybe there's somewhere higher. Mm. And perhaps if we can see how this thing called mindfulness starts working in our lives in a simple way, you know, how it's nice to live in a present, in a simple way, then we can start having faith in the rest and start believing in one step at a time. Uh, what the Buddha said about all the rest. If we do, we depend, when we're uh, determined enough and humble enough, this can take us into a whole new world, this most beautiful world of wisdom and samadhi. A tremendous sense of freedom because there's no, there's no longer a sense of needing anything in the world. The mind is completely self-reliant. So it can be a completely giving thing. Uh, so we've had some examples of people passing through here. Uh, so Lumpur Liam came last year, uh, who's the head of the order, he was here earlier this year as well who's head of the order, and uh, is an absolutely remarkable man. Lumpur Samedo, who was here earlier this year, you see the incredible qualities these people have developed over their long practice. Lumpur Samedo makes it sound so easy, you know, and yet there he, when he was living here, he was up at two o'clock every morning on his rowing machine. You know, he was in the temple by 3.30 and he'd done his yoga and he's and stood on his head for 20 minutes, been on his own machine, had a very strong coffee and then by the time he'd, by the time, after, an, after an hour and a half's meditation, you know, he's ready to give a talk that blasted the community out of the, out of the water. Uh, uh, so his, his uh, practice was one of incredible discipline and commitment to all the basic supports for mindfulness. Uh, getting up early, having a cold shower, doing your exercise, and all these things. You know, the kind of thing, discipline, that we end up having to commit ourselves to in order to really crack it. And there'll always be times, you know, in our lives when it goes wrong, you know, like you, like for me, slipping a disc a year and a half ago. Yeah, so we have to get on with it because, you know, what can, what can happen tomorrow? What piece of karma can come along and get in the way of all of this?
so on the last retreat over in the retreat center, we had a great retreat actually, it was a death and dying retreat, and, and we laughed a lot, funnily enough. And right at the end of the retreat, so I got a piece of paper from one of the retreatants, there's a lady, I found out later on, is a lady from Leeds who's been meditating quite intensively for the last few years. And uh, she described this experience where she was looking into her body with her mind in the meditation, getting very concentrated, and how her mind let go of her body for the first time. Uh, just a little bit. Uh, it's kind of flash, like a flash of lightning inside. And a, and a huge sense of joy, release, freedom. So if she can do it, <laughs> so can you lot, isn't it? So can I. Yeah, that was a moment of freedom for that lady. Freedom not just from mental suffering, but from physical suffering too. Complete freedom from suffering. That's what's possible through the practice of Dhamma. So I offer that for your reflection uh, this afternoon. I think that'll do. And um, we have a tea break now. I don't, how long do you usually have for a tea break? I don't. Uh, 20 minutes, okay, so we'll have a 20 minute tea break until 10 past and then we'll come back for discussion, questions and discussion at 10 past 3. <laughs>